Hello, and welcome back to the Stop Stressing Me Out podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Smith, and we're on week two of this season. So this season is all about stress in the workplace, strategies that we can use to manage it better, tips and tricks for leaders and individual contributors alike. So last week, we really just dove into what workplace well-being is, and frankly, is it a bunch of BS? Now, I hope you've gone and listened to that episode. It's a short one. So if you haven't, make sure you head back, take a quick listen. In a nutshell, here's what some of the research is saying. The research is saying that workplace well-being programs that are targeted at the work that an individual can do to manage their well-being, those programs do not work. However, if you look at workplace well-being as what are the programs, behaviors, actions we can take as an organization to better manage our stress, looking at systemic problems like workload, burnout, um, you know, inefficiencies in the workplace processes that need improved, uh, toxic workplaces and culture, if you look at those systemic issues, those are the workplace well-being programs that work. And that is what we are here to talk about this season. So with that in mind, today I wanted to talk about a topic that I've personally become more and more involved in over the years, and it's employee resource groups. So employee resource groups have this incredible power to strengthen engagement, and that's why I wanted to talk today to our guest, Johan Schudlich. Now, I first met Johan in late 2023 in connection with his work at Golden. So Golden is a volunteer management software that puts the volunteer at the center of their focus. They are committed to helping organizations save costs so that they can focus more on the impactful work that they are doing. They help organizations grow their programs efficiently and effectively, and they make compliance easy. And let's be honest, compliance is not often easy. So as Johan and I began connecting, I realized that he had this rich background in employee resource groups. And if you work for like a medium or a large size organization, there is a high likelihood that your organization has employee resource groups. Now you might call them action groups, affinity groups, or ERGs for short. But in essence, an employee resource group is about bringing together people who share common characteristics or life experiences. And more so nowadays, ERGs go even further in building not just awareness and belonging, but systemic change in their organizations that lead to more belonging, allyship, engagement, psychological safety, and real impact in the community. Johan spent the first 15 years of his career working with Goldman Sachs in a variety of roles, but the one that he describes in this podcast episode as his calling was in taking on a leadership role in Goldman Sachs' LGBTQ plus network. As you'll hear in the episode, his involvement with that ERG made a significant impact not only to his own life, but they created lasting change as a group that built strong allyship globally across the organization. Community continues to be in Johan's blood as he serves on the board of directors of FREE, which stands for Finance Requires Effective Education, and as the board treasurer for the Austin Gay Flag Football League. He has previously served as the president of the board of directors of the New York City LGBTQ Center. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, what's the career path that led him to employee resource groups to begin with. And then we're going to dive further into how is it the ERGs can help boost your feeling of belonging? How can an ERG uh, the, or the leaders shift the group from awareness building to more of that systemic organizational change that so many of them aim for? How to achieve goals in what's truly an intangible space when we think of employee resource groups? Unlike some other business goals that you may have that are very quantitative, there is a qualitative intangible aspect to them that is not to be underestimated in terms of its importance. 
we talk about how he and his team tested hypotheses of how they would reach those goals for their employee resource group, as well as approaching things from an experimentation mindset, what it is that makes an ERG network uh, successful, the difference that belonging can have within an organization, the really interesting data points that you can get from your engagement survey that will tie into your employee resource groups, and then we also dive into how you can build more psychologically safe workplaces through ERGs, what a culture of thoughtful disagreement looks like, and so much more. It is an absolutely fantastic conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, let's head into the interview with Johan. Okay, well, thank you so much, Johan, for joining me on the podcast. I'm really pleased to have you here. I'm really happy to be here. So in the um, theme of stress, of managing our well-being and our stress, I'm curious, what's, uh, we're recording this on January 2nd, what is stressing you out to start off the new year? Well, I think that this is a, a very kind of in the moment thing, but I'm actually worried that I didn't give my husband enough heads up that I'm going to be recording this and he comes in barging, singing or something like that. But aside from that, um, <laughs> which we'll deal with, obviously, um, uh, you know, I think the the start of a year is always a good forcing mechanism for me to sit back and figure out what's important and what I want to achieve and hold myself accountable to the promises I made last year. And I'm going through a little bit of that reconciliation right now of, you know, who's the person I want to be, what are my priorities and values, and how do I want to make sure I implement that in my life over the coming 12 months. And so um, that process of goal setting for me is always kind of stressful, because it's that balance of making sure I'm pushing myself hard enough, but also not being too hard on myself. And so I'm just, I'm literally going through that as we speak in these days. And so it's, a, it's an exciting opportunity, but it is in fact a little stressful for me. Well, and I think you flagged something really interesting that a lot of people don't think of is that there is such a thing of, as good stress, like the stress that helps us grow and evolve and change and learn. It's not that it doesn't have its like, you know, tense moments as well, but it is actually really good for us too. So um, that's a very exciting process for you. I also share your love of the new year or a new week or a new month as that kind of beginning and planning for the year. My what is stressing me out right now is that literally my living room is littered with the boxes of like all the holiday decorations that have to go away right now. And I kind of like uh, dropped it halfway through and I'm like, do I want to finish that? I probably should today before just get it done. I want to do all the other yep. things you see. I want to, I want to <laughs> jump into the year and, and be done with the holiday decorations, but there we have it. Yep. Holiday decorations and holiday returns are two big, yes. big books of stress that I deal with this time every year. For totally. Sure. Totally. Yeah. So set the stage for us a little bit. You and I have talked quite a few times before this, but mm -hmm. how did your career bring you into sort of that employee resource group space, that DE&I space? Sure. And so just for context, I was in financial services for 15 years before I um, really, truly found my calling. And I was very fortunate in that I came into the world of financial services with zero expectations. Like, Literally my senior year of college, I didn't have a job. I was about to join the management uh, group at the restaurant I was bartending and putting tables at. And so uh, I got a call from a professor who's like, hey, we want you to, you know, interview for this job. It's at this bank. And, you know, and long story short, I like kind of snuck in the back door, didn't go through any of the normal recruiting processes that most people who find themselves in financial services go through. And so I give you that context because I came into my career very open-minded frankly, knowing very, very little about the industry. Um, and through a series of kind of twists and turns, a lot of privilege, some luck, some skill, I found myself doing 
a bunch of different things at Goldman Sachs, which is the bank where I started. And uh, it was a really, it was kind of like the equivalent of a liberal arts education, but like a liberal arts education career where I worked in operations, I worked in sales, I worked in investment banking advisory and got to do a bunch of different things. You know, in reflecting on it after the fact, I think I was really willing to move so much because I didn't, like nothing really resonated with me on a deep like values level. And so I was like, oh, did this job is pretty good at for a couple of years. Someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, you want to do this other thing? And I said, okay. And, um, you know, ultimately about seven or eight years into my career, I got tapped with the first opportunity that was like actually a really exciting one for me which was to join the Goldman at the time we just called it the LGBT network. Obviously the, the nomenclature's evolved around how we name those things, but this is, you know, 10 plus years ago. And um, that was my first like real foray into the world of kind of professional diversity, equity and inclusion work. And at the time it was running one event for one pride month. And that was how I got kind of my toe in the door, so to speak of, um, you know, starting to do something, engaging with the network, um, realizing how hard it was, but also how deeply rewarding it was. And for me, that like package of something that's both really challenging of how do you, how do you do something that's going to resonate with a very broad, even within the LGBT community, very diverse group of people and something that's going to help also engage allies. So network also, it's like, that for me was just such a fun challenge. And that was what really kind of piqued my interest. And so from that moment of that, that one event for that one pride month that I organized, I kind of kept grasping for more and more responsibilities and doing things and raising my hand for anything that came my way until flash forward a couple of years later, I found myself actually running the LGBT network at Goldman. And for me, the thing, the overlay on that was I was, I was really successful at my job and I was doing stuff that, that like ostensibly I was doing everything right. I was, you know, on the partner path at Goldman. I was running a big chunk of the investment banking division and on my way into office in the morning, instead of thinking about where, you know, where my clients debt trades or what derivatives I was structuring were all of my like mind share and emotional energy was being devoted towards was running the LGBT network. And so, you know, for me, that was a really interesting aha moment where, I went from realizing that there's this thing, which is a, you know, some might even say 0%, but call it 3% of my professional responsibilities. That was something like 98% of my passion. And I think for me, that, that process of both discovering what I'm like, what resonates with me, and what are the things I can do internally within the organization that are going to help me scratch that itch. I think it was a really, really powerful process and a journey that I was on. I was so grateful for Goldman giving me the opportunity to go on that journey of discovery over 15 years. Mm -hmm. I love that, that you were so open-minded from the beginning of your career of these different opportunities. Because I think when we do get on that very, like, this is the exact path I'm going to follow, there is inherent stress in that, right? Because it's there's just rigidity associated with it. But I'm, I'm curious, so... For most people joining or starting uh, an employee resource group is about building community and feeling that sense of belonging. What was your belonging like prior to being a part of the ERG at your organization? And how did it change after maybe? Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. Like I and and a lot of this, what I'll say are reflections and, and not meant to be commentary on Goldman as an organization mm -hmm. has a lot more to do with my own journey of getting comfortable in my own skin, 
shedding some of the shame that I felt growing up from being identifying as a, you know, a gay male and all that sort of stuff. And so for me, I came into the organization closeted. Um, and that was something because I had that experience of coming into the organization closeted, it really constrained my ability to form genuine, sincere relationships with people in the organization. And so I had a ton of people that I was friendly with, um, but no one I would like go out with after work or no like true, like capital F friends um, who I worked with because I was always, always withholding a little bit of myself. And so for me, that contrast between what it was like and kind of the weight you carry being closeted at a place like Goldman to then after a couple of years later, I had an amazing boss who was super like helpful. And anyway, I just felt much more comfortable coming out. Um, and then that difference between, oh, all the weight has been lifted versus I know what it's like for people who still bear the, the weight of being in the closet was a really helpful kind of informative distinction for me in terms of like, okay, what are the priorities that we have as a network? And what are the things I want to make sure that we're doing to engage people, you know, both people that are out loud and proud allies, and maybe people that are identifying as allies while they're trying to figure out if they're going to come out and be proud. And so like, that, that was a really kind of helpful framing for me in terms of, you know, setting priorities for the organization and making sure that, you know, we weren't just catering towards, like I said, a certain subset of the LGBT community, but really respecting the, the inherent diversity of it and being as inclusive as possible. And it sounds like the what you were saying before is like they had that one event that was really sort of that awareness building. That's not uncommon for a lot of organizations and their ERGs, right? Depending on the maturity, it can it can be a real challenge for folks with turnover as well to move from like that initial state of your ERG being about building awareness or having uh you know one-off events to really systemic change within an organization that fosters real belonging and inclusiveness. So having done the role, right? Like what advice do you have or or what was that experience shifting that ERG from the one flat, you know, big event to, you know, systemic change? And just to be clear, I think a lot of, I I, I, I certainly don't want to take credit for, for all this change. There was a lot of people who came totally. before me at the org who did a lot of great work. And I don't mean to set it up as they only prioritize one thing either. That, that wasn't, that was a, a poor mischaracter, a poor characterization on my part. I think what, that, that was more in reference to like my own journey. And like I right. came in at this point in time. But I think, you know, when I think about the, what proved to be most impactful at the organization wasn't so much a single event mm -hmm. or wasn't so much about awareness or bringing in a flashy name to come lead something like it came down to one thing within and again this is, this is an oversimplification but for me the one big thing which i think is always a helpful framework of like yeah, there's a million things we can do but what's the one big thing that we as an erg have to get right if we're ultimately going to achieve our goals, and again, the goals are going to vary, but like understanding what that one big thing is, I think is a helpful framing. Um, for me, that one big thing was how do we help people who identify as LGBTQ plus in the organization form deeper relationships with others in the organization? Mm -hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean other LGBTQ plus, but it's like, how do you, and again, reflecting back on my own experience, like I was unable to do that. Part of it was because I was not out. Um, but I think part of it was just like, there weren't the mechanisms in place. And so a lot of what we did during, you know, my time and, you know, based on the foundations before me, and it's been, you know, that mantle has been carried long after I left, right, 
was like, how do we actually get in the business of helping people who are part of the community build meaningful relationships in the organization? Because I'm, I'm very much of the mentality that, you know, if you can do the right things, and we can talk a little bit about the how in a second, but like if you do the right things to enable those relationships to be built, relationships are a foundation of trust. Trust is a foundation of security in an organization. And then that has all sorts of other cascading implications. Like how do you get access to the right mentors? How do you get access to the right professional development opportunities, et cetera? And so I think, you know, if you can get that stuff right, and for me, that was the one big thing of let's help people build relationships because we know from, from deeper relationships throughout the organization, there's going to be a bunch of cascading good for members of the network in ways which will both help the members of the network, but also create a value prop of people wanting to be in the network because they see all the good that happens to the people that are in the network. And it becomes this really positive reinforcing cycle for folks. And for me, that was how we focused and again, did a bunch of other things that didn't meet that primary objective, but most of the initiatives we did were in service of that. Mm -hmm. And I love, because that's also perhaps a bit of a qualitative data point, right? We're building better relationships that you can't necessarily put that on a survey the same way a lot of people, a lot of organizations want to prove the effectiveness of their ERGs or that kind of thing. But when you focus on that intangible, it creates so many more tangible elements as a result of the connections. Yeah, and I think, listen, I think this is, this is a controversial statement to say about the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, but I think you'll you'll understand the point of it, right? Which is there is such an obsession with metrics, <laughs> particularly in the DEI space, but but I think overall that oftentimes you set up all sorts of, of potential for moral hazard, adverse outcomes, like whatever however you want to describe it, where people obsess over the metrics at pursuit of the bigger goals, right? And so I think I think having the the confidence to be able to say things qualitatively are important and having explicit objectives and priorities about how you're going to go about achieving them and hold yourself accountable. That's all important, but it's also okay for there to be some qualitative goals that you set and hold yourself accountable to, because at the end of the day, so much about the work that happens in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, and certainly at the, uh, you know, the ERG level, is about how humans feel and what their experience is. And that's not always, you know, you can't always distill that down to the equivalent of an MPS score, like whatever it is, right? And it's, it's there's so much nuance that is lost in metrics that I think when we're talking about the human experience, you need to accept, you need to surrender a little bit of the control that metrics gives you for the sake of getting a really rich, really robust understanding of how people operate and what makes them tick and how they set their own priorities. And at the end of the day, that for me was, was I think, a, a big aha moment. And again, to do this right, you have to both accept that some things are in fact going to be qualitative and then also have stuff to hold yourself accountable to that is, you know, at the end of the day, much more objective. Yeah. No, I really appreciate it because I always think of, and especially this time of year as well, like what are SMART goals missing? They're missing how people are going to feel on the journey and at completion of those goals, right? So many organizations set these huge KPIs for, you know, organization as a whole or their department or their ERG and are we getting to it at the sake of someone's well-being feeling of belonging all of those aspects like it's love that you focused on that first so so the challenge though with qualitative goals of you know building those connections with people is that 
it's in that intangible space. So how did you go about doing that one big thing? Running a bunch of experiments is the honest answer, right? And I think, you know, we had a bunch of hypotheses that we were willing to test and, and, you know, very grateful because the organization gave us both the flexibility and the resources to run a bunch of experiments. And so that's not true everywhere. So this is not necessarily meant to be like a template that everyone should copy. But we, we focused on um, a, a couple specific initiatives that we thought were going to be helpful. The first initiative was focused on proximity. And so we said, there's a hypothesis that, um, and just a little bit of context before I even get into that. Um, before me, there was a lot of work that had been done at Goldman to create the concept of an ally. They were one of the first ally programs launched. It's now it's now kind of ubiquitous at this point, and every org has a version of it. But the, the, the people at Goldman were like literally one of the first employee resource groups to actually kind of come up with and implement that idea of, of an ally back in the day. And this is like early 2000s. Um, and like that was amazing. And we had a handful of very, very senior, very well-respected allies in the organization. And I think it did a lot to, to both, you know, set the tone at the top and be like, oh, my department head's an ally. I guess, you know, there's not going to be room for, you know, homophobic language or whatever the other bad things that that was intended to, to um, prevent. It also gave people, um, you know, it also kind of lifted the stature of the network to attach a bunch of people who didn't themselves identify as LGBTQ plus to the network and like, oh, they're the official allies in the network. And so like it, it served a bunch of goals. One of the things that that kind of initial version of the ally program didn't do, though, was oftentimes you had, you know, a handful of people were the folks in the New York office. And so we're like, okay, how do we start to do a better job of realizing that we have people both around the country and around the world who are supportive? And then also, and this this is important when it comes back to the like the, the mentality of like, how do we let and, and set up everyone in the network to be successful how do we give them the opportunity to build relationships with people who aren't, you know, just senior people in the New York office when you're, you know, a, a private wealth advisor in the Atlanta office, you know, a junior private wealth advisor in the Atlanta office. And so we embarked on one of our, our pilot experiments that we ran is like, let's get a senior person who's going to be a representative of the network on every floor in every building where we have critical mass around the U S. And so that's like, dozens of of sites and on some sites we have you know 40 story buildings and so like it was a big ambitious undertaking but we felt so confident that having someone being able to say to everyone in the network that there's someone on your floor who's not going to tolerate the nonsense talk or whatever it is or someone who is a resource for you to go to maybe it can be a career development conversation because almost definitionally if they're on your floor they're probably in your department and have more proximity to what you're going through on a daily basis like there's a bunch of like interesting second and third order consequences that approach but like again the strategy was something very like qualitative quantitative right like we could say did we actually get a senior person on every floor in every building in the US and we could we could hold ourselves accountable like goal again it's much harder to prove the hypothesis of like mm-hmm. Does every LGBTQ plus person feel like they were able to form better relationships because of that? Probably not that thing alone, but that thing in concert with all the other things we were trying to do strategically is again, what we, I say with a lot of confidence looking back on it, we definitely moved the ball down the field in terms of making people feel comfortable, helping them you know, have mechanisms in place to build the relationships, which as we mentioned before, we think are kind of the, the cornerstone of, of a healthy and happy career. Yeah, I just 
out of curiosity, like how long did that take you? A year, um, a month? It, it took us about six months, to okay. be honest, um, because, you know, like like all kind of strategic decisions, there's there's the debate about what's the thing you should do, and then there's how do you do it, and how do you make sure you're selecting the right people to do it, and like all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we were, uh, again, very grateful that we had a, a robust we called it HCM, but an HR organization who was very much supportive of the initiative. And so we had, okay, let me go talk to the business partner who runs, I'm picking Atlanta, but like runs the Atlanta office and be like, hey, who are the right people that we should talk to? Or, you know, and so we weren't doing all the heavy lifting ourselves per se. We had, you know, good buy-in from, you know, other senior leaders in the organization, as well as the the broader uh, human capital management organization, which which made the implementation of it a little bit easier. Um Still took plenty of effort, don't get me wrong, but but we had a you know a lot of leverage in implementing it. Yeah, it sounds like in a what like way ahead of its time in terms of that executive engagement and buy-in. I just wanted to take a quick pause from this incredible episode to let you know a little bit about our spring training calendar over at Impactful Engagement. Starting in March, we are kicking off our new course lineup all about decreasing stress in the workplace. Two of our programs are geared specifically to people leaders. The first one, Less Stress Leaders, is all about looking inward. It pulls directly from the coaching that I do with empathetic, ambitious leaders who give so much of themselves and struggle to fill their own tank. In this course, we'll be focusing on how you can build a strong foundation. You'll end the program feeling empowered, more focused, and with a sustainable game plan from which to springboard. The leaders who I've worked with in this capacity have said this focus has allowed them to go back to their teams with a renewed energy, showing up in ways that they thought they no longer could. The second program I want to talk to you about is Less Stress Teams. Less Stress Teams is all about how to better manage your team's well-being. In this program, we dial it back to look at the root causes of team stress and what are those systemic changes that you can make, practices you can pilot on your own team to see tangible results. If you go forward and employ the practices in less stressed teams with consistency, you're going to see teams who feel more validated, recognized for their efforts, engaged, and with a renewed sense of purpose in the workplace. You'll build a toolkit to develop psychologically safe teams, and you'll get to connect with peers from all sorts of different industries to share best practices. Our first program kicks off on March 1st, so you don't want to wait on this. Check out impactfulengagement.com forward slash training for more information. That's impactfulengagement.com forward slash training. Now let's get back to the episode. To achieve this level of belonging, like what do you feel like is, like you're, you've been a chief operating officer at multiple organizations now, what is the business case for belonging, for the value of these types of programs? There's, there's a, this is, you know, one guy's point of view, there's a lot of empirical research that's mm-hmm. been written around this as well. And I'd suggest everyone read all the empirical research as well. But I think for me, um, when you're confident in your place at an organization, you can eliminate all the distractions that come from insecurity. And that insecurity can be professional, am I going to get the promotion? It can be um, compensation wise, like, oh, I'm, are people not paying me because I, they don't like this aspect of my identity or like there, there's like a bunch of bad things that can happen. There's also, by the way, back to my point about relationships, you know, if you know, and are able to form meaningful relationships with a kind of a, a wide number of people in an organization, 
you know, I always think of it, it's like a bunch of different lines in the water from a career development standpoint in terms of opportunities and like all of that sort of stuff um, falls into this, this belonging bucket in a way, because, you know, w- once you're happy and comfortable and have confidence that, you know, the way you're treated in an org is a function of the way that you're able to contribute to that org and not a lot of other things that are interfering with either people's assessment of how you perform or other kind of adverse incentives people might have, like, it, it just is a, an easier place to work. And I think that at the end of the day, when people have confidence that there's a sense of, it's not always a fairness and justice conversation, but I think that's a, that's a big part of it. Like, is this a fair place to work or are there things that are going to be held against me or weaponized or whatever it is that are going to impact my ability to be successful? Like, I think belonging chips away at all of those sentiments because you can have real conversations with your colleagues because you can talk to your boss or your bosses or whatever it is in a, in a way where you can start to demystify some of that stuff. And like, you can only have that type of relationship with people. Come back to what I said before, when you have a foundation of trust, there's an existing relationship (laughs) underlying that. And so I think that's why for me, it all comes back to meaningful relationships and belonging is just a, it's a, it's kind of the networked word of meaningful relationships. It's an ecosystem level thing versus an individual, like, like, you know, sure, someone can say they belong, but I think the sense of belonging in an organization is, much more pervasive than any one person and kind of how they feel at any point in time. Well, I mean, it ties into psychological safety, right? And all the elements <clears throat> of how that improves performance and productivity and all the things. Um, and this ties into sort of the next question around on that data side of things. Like, how do you feel like being a part of an ERG impacts someone's well-being and stress levels? I know when you and I had an earlier conversation, we had talked about a survey that was done uh, even just around how people were willing to self-identify and how that maybe changed over time. Yeah. Yeah. There was a a survey. um, Again, this has changed subsequently. This was, you know, a decade plus ago, but um, Goldman did a, uh, something called the people survey and the people survey was a biannual survey of the entire organization. And there were way too long, millions of questions, all that sort of stuff. But I think you can find some interesting kind of trends and intersections between the questions. And one of the most interesting um, insights that came from the survey, and this was right around the time I'd started getting involved with the network, was there was a really strong statistical connection between um, people who chose not to identify as either heterosexual or homosexual or anywhere in the LGBT plus community. Um, And so Kind of the asterisk on that is that so there's a presumption that some of those are people that are not out maybe not all of them people might have you know political personal philosophical reasons why not but when people said i choose not to identify um was a really strong statistical connection between that and their general unhappiness at work mm-hmm. right and and how the word psychological safety didn't have that same nomenclature now that we did then but i think like and the implication of that was wow this thing is actually a really interesting predictor of employee sentiment and what are things that we can do to start to resolve that gap. And I think for us, it was a really interesting insight and a data level without, you know, when you ask questions explicitly in in employee sentiment surveys, you're always exposed to all sorts of, you know, different risks, but we can glean those insights between presumably unrelated things and start to do some really, find some interesting connections. I think that's where the real power is. And, And that, like I said, was, 
was one of the sound bites that that gave us a lot of support for the work we were doing and and you know allowed us to get buy-in to you know take on some reasonably ambitious initiatives. Were there any other data points like over your your time with the ERG that you noticed that tied to people's well-being and stress? Um there were a bunch of really interesting, and I'm not gonna mention names for the for the sake of protecting, but there were a handful of reasonably high profile senior people in the organization who either came out as a reasonably senior person or who had, you know, come in as that person and just kind of made their way up the ranks. And I think, you know, that was a really interesting um, phenomenon for senior leadership, like CEO, literally CEO mm -hmm. level on down to have to get to know people in the organization who were dealing with either coming out or people who were out and had navigated the organization um, to get to that level. And I think, you know, that made it much clearer as a business case when you're like, oh, wow, this is one of our top deal makers in the banking division who's going through something. All of a sudden, this isn't just about the 22-year-olds who are coming out of college. This is something that's like core to our productivity. And I think that was a really helpful reframing for senior leadership in terms of getting, you know, getting them bought in and behind the thing. Did that answer your question or did I go off on no, a tangent I there? I think it's helpful. It's, I mean, ultimately it feels like there's so many various qualitative and quantitative data points that support that when you are part of an employee resource group where you feel an increased sense of belonging, whether it's gender, like whatever element of an ERG you're part of, that if it's going to improve your engagement and your well-being as a result, you know, you're likely to see stress. Um sort of go down. And as you and I talked about, you know, there are still positive stress from, you know, pushing yourself to whether it's higher levels or trying different careers within an organization as a result of those connections. Um, yeah. But ultimately, you know, I can't agree with you more about like the ability to focus when you take off that mental load of this part of my identity, I don't have to mask in the workplace kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, this is a little bit of a step back from what we were talking about before, but in terms of like things that can make a difference in an organization, one of the things that people to this day still talk about, we had organized a bunch of brunches, like completely self-funded, right? Anyone who wanted to was like an open invite. We'd all go to, we were living in New York at the time. So oh, you know, anyone who wants to, we're going to go meet up and do, you know, have brunch in Chelsea and, you know, mm -hmm. open invite. And to this day, I think those informal meetups where you sat next to people that weren't in your division that you probably didn't know, we'd be at a table, sometimes 20 people, sometimes 50 people would show up and it'd just be kind of silly. And, you know, they had performers and it was, it was like kind of a thing, but we always had a great time. And I think that wasn't so much about the brunch. What that was about was being able to walk through the lobby three days later and seeing four familiar faces from people who you knew were, you know, maybe they were queer identifying, maybe they weren't, but like that comes back to the depth and the breadth of the relationships you can have. And particularly when you're, you know, getting to meet people outside of your department that you worked in, or maybe people at different seniority levels than you, like that's where I think you start to have a deeper appreciation, particularly in, you know, an organization that's was at the time 35-ish thousand people, right? Like, feeling like it's not just me and one person, but, oh, I now know people in six of the 13 divisions and I know people that are, you know, analysts all the way to managing directors. And there's like a different degree of confidence and, 
and you know comes back to the belonging point of like oh i feel like i actually have kind of roots that are beyond just my relationship between me and my manager or my direct reports or whatever my the hyper localized stuff you often feel in an organization and so all of that comes back to the point of like you know there are lots of interesting things you can do to help you know lay the foundation for relationships to be built you can never like the network can't build those but i think you know creating the right circumstances for like magic to happen between people i think is incredibly powerful i love that and my brain was all of a sudden going like it applies to so many different areas of life right i was like we moved here a few years ago i don't know half the people on my street but you feel safer when you do know your neighbors and those connect anyways i'm going out a weird tangent here so i'm going to bring it back um <laughs> I want to switch gears a little bit, still on the psychological sure. safety aspect, but I, I did notice in your LinkedIn that you had worked at Bridgewater, and I had recently finished uh, reading Amy Edmondson's book, The Fearless Organization, which is all about psychological safety, and she does particularly highlight um, what was referred to at Bridgewater as thoughtful disagreement, and, and very much said it's not for everybody, um, <laughs> but what if anything did that culture teach you about how to engage people to solve big sticky issues be it like business advocacy work community engagement i'm gonna answer your question slightly differently bridgewater uses the language of getting in sync mm -hmm. a lot and i think getting in sync has a bunch of different contexts in which it's helpful it's often used at the goal level of like, let's be really, really explicit about what we're trying to achieve. And I'm not talking just like five-year strategic plan goals. I mean, like literally, why are we having a meeting? Why did this meeting show up on my calendar today? And what are my expectations in the 30 minutes of my time that you're asking? And so like, it's like, how do we set the, the infrastructure? And then how do we set the interpersonal expectations of making sure that there's an expectation that we always end up getting in sync on things. Uh, and I think that expectation of, okay, we're going to, we're like not going to leave the meeting until we've reached a resolution or, you know, decided to, to have another meeting about it. Like, I think is one of the best parts of it because it's not about disagreeing. It's about not being afraid of disagreeing for the sake of ultimately getting in sync. Mm -hmm. Right. And only when you can, you can, you know, everyone should have different opinions. Everyone should feel safe to, to share their opinions. And I think as long as you can always have confidence that the goals you're holding, whether it again, be the context of a single meeting or a bigger strategic plan, right? Like encouraging everyone to bring their thoughts and ideas to the table and then realize that the goal is ultimately to kind of hash it out and come up with, you know, whatever your decision-making framework is, is going to vary. Bridgewater happened to be like a very, logic focused disciplined organization and that but again different things work in different organizations but i think the the goal wasn't disagreement the goal mm -hmm. was very much how do we use disagreement well and what are the guardrails we can put in place to ensure that that's in service of things that actually matter again goal setting is a good example of that did that take a while to adjust to that culture is that like how long do you take it refresh how long do you think it takes people to adjust to that way of working and making sure opinions are heard in order to get to being in sync like well, i think we like to think most organizations do that but reality is they don't i think there are organizations that do it and i think there are people that don't do it right yeah. like 
so some people are wired differently is the reality, right? And like some people are just going to be easier with that. That when I say that, I mean like being able to have someone like directly disagree with what you're saying or saying I don't understand that or saying your logic is bad or saying like all those sorts of things. And I think the the thing that was very helpful for me during my time at Bridgewater is like the reps of oh, I can't take this personally, or oh, I can't I can't hold myself to the standard of perfection because that is not going to be a intellectually or emotionally healthy place for me to be if that's my standard. And there are always people who are disagreeing with you. And again, in pursuit of getting to better answers overall, but like, I think that's the thing. And it's not, it's not just about thick skin. It's about being able to hold the goals of whatever you're trying to achieve above your feelings in any particular moment. I think that's the thing that takes a bunch of reps uh, just to get used to that, to be able to put your your ego or your emotions aside and realize, no, it's it's better to disagree and get to a good place than it is to agree and end up with a subpar outcome. Um, and I think that's very much a, a frame of mind thing. There's also a lot, by the way, that goes into how does everyone do that together well and making sure I think this is this is part of the brilliance of the, the Bridgewater approach is like, how do you have principles mm-hmm. that are going to define what those rules of engagement are in a way that both gives people license to disagree and also forces them and holds them accountable to disagreeing well. Um, and I think it's it's not sufficient to just be like, oh, go disagree, it'll be fine. No, like, obviously, <laughs> you need to because we're all humans, and we all, mm-hmm. you know, anyway, um, but I think that's one of the things that they did that was it perfect? No. Did people abuse it? Sure. And and I think both on a philosophical slash theoretical level, as well as, you know, by and large, I think it tended to be done very well internally. Mm -hmm. And for those who are listening, who may not have picked up on it, Principles that you were talking about is also the name of a book written by the Bridgewater CEO founder um, on the principles of how to have that, you know, those thoughtful disagreements and, and, and that sort of approach to leadership and community okay perfect well thank you so much for that i was reading somewhere the other day that one of like the skills that we are struggling with as a society nowadays is like the ability to debate the ability Mm -hmm. to have those thoughtful conversations and what i liked about what you said was the reps right it's the practice it's the it's a continual process and the first time you do it it might feel incredibly first many times you do it might feel incredibly uncomfortable but learning how to do it is is an art form in and of itself. Yeah, and I think there's also a like, again, this is a very much an interpersonal dynamics thing or sometimes a group dynamics thing, but like, as long as you can have confidence that all those disagreements, or most of them are coming from a place of seeking to understand and not making people look stupid, but like a, a genuine trust, again, comes back to trust and relationships at the end of the day, which by the way, you know, two of the foundations of principles are meaningful work and meaningful relationships for that very reason, right? Um, you know, if you think, if you give people the benefit of the doubt, can assume, can assume good intent, and, you know, can then assume that that they're really asking questions from a perspective of advancing their own learning or helping them, helping them understand how you think or why you made the decisions you did and all that sort of stuff, it goes a really, really, really long way to not having it be attacking not having it be personal like okay and i think that those sorts of like that context really really matters when you're talking about things that are very very hard and you know like like disagreeing 
you mentioned at the beginning that you're at a point where you found your your purpose and your calling. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, Golden and how you came to join the team? Yeah, and I honestly, I give my work that I was able to do through the employee resource group at, at Goldman full credit for this, but like the thing that, that I love and, and kind of the through line for everything that has been and continues to be meaningful for me is bringing people together and giving them a good experience, right? That's the thing for me. And like, it was a very literal thing, whether it was the brunches in Chelsea, we were organizing at, at gold men, this is going to be confusing or where I'm working now, which is gold den, which is the <laughs> volunteer management software company. You know, we, I'm, I'm really excited and grateful now to both work for an organization who on a, on a literal values level is trying to change the world, right, for good. Um, but, you know, when we think about what we are trying to do, it's trying to allow people to live in their golden moments through acts of service and trying to help them, you know, realize that coming together with others is the thing that's going to make a difference in this world. And, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff that we do very, very well. And I'm really proud to be part of that organization. But I think for at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's about how do you bring people together in this context? It's like literally, how do you bring people together in support of generally a nonprofit organization who's ultimately trying to do good. But but that for me has been the through line and why I'm so excited for this. You know, my, my I don't want to say it's a chapter because it sounds like there's a finite time here, but I'm, I'm really excited yeah. for the work I'm doing. Right now. Yeah. So what are you focused on with Golden for the sort of coming years? The, again, the, the, the platform is volunteer management. Um, so most of our customers are nonprofits, municipals, hospitals, schools, like kind of the whole gamut of anyone who you can imagine, it's corporations, um, employee resource groups, actually, um, who, use the, um, who use the platform to help their, you know, whether it's employees find opportunities and things that they can connect with local orgs, whether it's you know, a local soup kitchen who needs to help, you know, kind of crowdsource people from the local community. Um, we're, we also have an app right now, which is one of the things we're spending a lot of energy on right now, which is, you know, anyone around the country, or frankly around the world, but mostly US centric at this point, um, anyone around the country can download the golden app and look for ways that they can volunteer in their local communities. And so it's really about lowering those barriers for any one of us to go out and, and be of service to others. And that's something we're really excited about. Uh, we're also spending a, a lot of energy um, thinking about how we can better support some of our nonprofit users or nonprofit organizers is the term we use internally to do things like how do we do a better job of taking um, people who have, who have been serving an organization for a substantial period of time and helping convert them to donors, like helping them, you know, evolve their role in the ways that they can support an, an organization internally. So we're spending a lot of time on the donations front within the volunteer management context, which has been really exciting. Um, and again, we're, we're, and then there's a bunch of like kind of smaller level kind of platform things that we're doing as well, but, but those are kind of the two big things. How do we improve the experience for, you know, organizers to be able to use our app to help source new volunteers into an org and then doing some of the fun things that we've been talking around donations, et cetera. Well, I am pumped to check out the app. And one of the things I would just, some of the listeners might have familiar, uh, familiarity with volunteer management platforms, but what I really resonate with on the golden side is so many of these volunteer management systems are sort of closed, whether to an organization or to the nonprofit that it serves or that kind of thing. And as an individual, if you're going out and looking to volunteer, most cities or, or states, I wanted to say provinces, but like most places have like 
central like diff so many different places to search for volunteer opportunities so if you can go to one app to be able to search your area whether I'm here whether I'm you know traveling to Seattle whether I'm going somewhere else like you're putting the volunteer at the center of it uh which I which I love yeah no it was it's I mean and kudos to the team I mean we've been around a number of years but they like are really forward thinking on this stuff and unlike a lot of other solutions out there we're very participant or, or volunteer mm -hmm. focused and so you know, when you're a volunteer and you sign up for an opportunity through Golden and say you have to get a background check to do something, that's part of your profile. And like, that's something that is portable and you can take to other orgs and you don't have to go background check with every single org in the Golden ecosystem because, again, it was designed very intentionally. Like, what are the ways that that we can, you know, for Victoria or Johan, make it easier for either of us to go volunteer? And it's like, oh, let's not have to redo a bunch of things or sign up for a bunch of forums. Like, it's all very volunteer centric and designed. So literally like one click commitments, hopefully mm -hmm. at the end of the day where you or I can say like, Hey, there's this thing. I want to go do it and push a button and show up on yeah. Saturday and make some meatloaf at the soup kitchen or whatever it is. Yeah. Which is also great for the nonprofit because then they don't have to pay for an additional uh, background check. Sorry, I can geek out on that. So I'm going to rein that one in as well. Let's, <laughs> let's tie back to ERGs and volunteering and DE&I work. What do you think is that value in intentional volunteerism for those types of groups? Yeah, I, I think anytime coming and bring it back to relationships, mm -hmm. right? And like, what are ways that you can build relationships? Um, anytime you can take people out of their individual context and put them in a shared foreign context, this is part of why travel is such an interesting thing too, right? I think in many ways, service opportunities for ERGs do that thing. Let's take 20 people from different parts of our organization who may not know each other and I'll send them down to the community center and have them paint walls, which is ostensibly a terrible activity for any individual person to, to do on a Saturday. But you're doing it 20 people from your org, you can, you know, you all sit down, you grab lunch together, maybe I'll grab a beer or whatever it is afterwards. All of a sudden you start to form those relationships because everyone's going through the same domestic, but like foreign experience doing something for the first time together getting a, you know, hopefully a sense of, of good out of that shared experience. And like that sort of stuff, I think can be really powerful in the, in the employee resource sense, because not only are you, you know, number one, connecting to hopefully whatever kind of CSR goals that your organization has. So obviously there's a, a tie into larger employer goals as well, but you're doing it at the same time while hopefully forming meaningful connections between employees, which as we talked about, I think is like one of the core tenants of really like creating a sense of belonging, I think it's a win-win. And so, mm -hmm. you know, for me, it's something that we started doing. We created a volunteer pillar when I was running the network because I felt so strongly and back to my, like, what are the bunch of the experiments we can run? That was a really good way that we could do it where we said, hey, let's always make sure folks have an opportunity or a couple opportunities a month to go, you know, to be of service, meet some other people from gold men at the time and, you know, hopefully help out of a couple organizations that obviously needed it. So mm -hmm. I think it all, it all comes back to the same thing of like, how do you bring people together, give them a good experience and in pursuit of better meaningful relationships between them? Yeah. And I think volunteerism has uh, shifted a little bit over time and especially with the pandemic and remote volunteering, even though that's kind of going away again. But um, so being at the epicenter of volunteerism with Golden, what are you seeing are some of the trends right now? Um, you know, as across, whether it's the big entities we serve, the corporates, hospitals, education, whatever it is, the organizers or the the individuals, I think the one thread through everyone now is, and this is a little bit coming out of the pandemic, but it's just a prioritization of values and meaning. And 
how do people spend their time in a way that is personally rewarding for them and getting connected to kind of bigger causes and, and things that are beyond just their own kind of local priorities. And I think it's, it's no secret that we, particularly in the U.S., but certainly you know, throughout the rest of the world, I think there's a lot of systemic things that are broken and people want to be a force for change and do their little part to, to try and repair that. And I think volunteerism is one of those ways that people have chosen to do that of like, yeah, sure, everyone should obviously go vote from jurisdictions where you have that opportunity to. And I think there's lots of other things you can do to help be a part of the change. I think that's something that, you know, I think as at times the world looks a little bit more more dismal and it's easy to to be a little bit more pessimistic about what the future holds for all of us. I think one thing that everyone can do is kind of take matters into their own hands and be of, of value and use to organizations that that are trying to be a force for good. And, you know, back to the meaningful relationships thing, right? Like we all have a lot more power collectively than any of us do individually. And like organiza organizations and volunteering are one of the ways we can harness that power, form our own like little mini cohorts and collectives and be a, a force for good in the world. And I think that sentiment is definitely something that that is resonating with people. And we've seen it in kind of the way people volunteer, the frequency they volunteer, the organizations they volunteer with, the types of opportunities that people are signing up for, et cetera. Um, and again, it's it's just like how do we how do we use volunteering not just as something that I'm checking a box to get on my resume in high school or something like that, but actually, so I personally can be part of a movement for good, is something that that kind of crosses demographics, that crosses national boundaries, that crosses you know everything else, and it's it's perhaps now more important than ever. Well, I can't think of a better way to end the podcast. So thank you so much for joining me today. I really, really appreciate it. And my pleasure. Thanks, Troy. Thank you so much, Johan, for joining us on the podcast. I found that a fascinating conversation. And I had to smile because I think employee resource groups, social impact, employee volunteerism, these are often parts of an organization that people sometimes fall into and it is the best thing that ever happens to them. And it can change the trajectory of their careers and their, their values and their life. Uh, I know that happened for me, so I resonated with the conversation deeply. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a colleague or a friend who you think would find it meaningful. And don't forget, we've got some incredible programs that are coming up starting in March. So if you want to participate in either the Less Stressed Leaders or the Less Stressed Teams training, you can find more information at impactfulengagement.com forward slash training. The link should be in the description wherever you are listening to this podcast. And again, that is impactfulengagement.com forward slash training. Until next week, when we have a fantastic guest who's going to talk to us about what it takes for a leader of a team to create psychologically safe teams. What are some of the best tools and experiments that she's ever run to take a team from maybe low engagement, lower performance to high performance, high engagement, high psychological safety. It is a fire episode and I hope you don't miss it. So make sure you are subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next week.